But I don't think the joint staff really believes that Ukraine can defeat Russia. And so because of that, they they stop short of saying, let's give them this, let's give them this. And because I think they also have an exaggerated uh, perception of the risk of Russia using a nuclear weapon. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. As I record this, Germany is finally announcing it will provide Leopard or Leopard tanks to Ukraine. And it will allow other European countries, which own Leopards, to do the same. America will also send a few dozen M1 Abrams tanks. A few hundred tanks could be on the front line in Ukraine within months. They will, according to my guest this week, retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, change the battlefield and help Ukraine towards victory. And that's a key word, victory. Because up until now, a lot of Western countries have said, okay, stop Russia. But they've not quite said they want Russia to lose because of fear of what that might mean. Retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges is the former commander of U.S. Army Europe, and he joins us now from Germany. Hi, Ben. Hey, good morning, Dan. Ben, you've, you've taken on a new role now uh, with Human Rights First. I mean, what, what is the focus? So I joined Human Rights First this past summer because um, I wanted to broaden my perspective on certain things beyond just traditional defense and security issues. And frankly, because I was concerned about the rise of extremism, not only in Europe, but even in our own country back in the in the States. And so Human Rights First gives me the, the chance as a senior advisor to stay focused on uh, Russia's aggression in, in uh, Europe, but also to uh, weigh in on those matters about protecting our own democracy at home. You are in the epicenter of this debate now, uh, Germany, over the question of whether to supply Leopard 2 tanks or not, maybe yes, uh, maybe no, maybe rain, maybe snow, it goes on and on. And it looks like maybe Germany's about to get on with this. They're at least advertising that they're about to make a decision. So uh, last Friday uh, at the, the meeting of the Ramstein Contact Group, uh, Germany missed a great opportunity to clarify, not just about tanks, but about their strategic view of the world about, you know, their role uh, in contributing to stability and security in Europe. Uh, first week on the job for the new defense minister was a global stage, was been a perfect opportunity to say, um, yes, of course, not only are we going to do everything we can for as long as it takes, which is what Chancellor Schultz has said, but could have specifically said, for now, we're willing to at least allow other nations to have leopards to donate them or give them to Ukraine if they want, as we continue to review our own policy. Instead, uh, the new defense minister said, I'm not a strategist, I'm the minister, which that's not a great uh, way to start. But of course, if you are the defense minister, of course you have to be a strategist. And then secondly, he said that we are going to start, we need to count and get accountability of what we have. So after eight years of this war and one year of the special military operation, the German defense ministry doesn't know how many tanks they have and what their status is. I mean, that that really uh, lays bare what we've all suspected is that the uh, the German uh, defense ministry does not have the culture of readiness 
even though their officers know how to do this, the civilian leadership there. And and the bottom line is that um, Germany still lacks self-confidence. And so they, um, when it comes to defense type issues and, and um, you know, so the Bundeskanzler has to deal with internal politics inside his party. And uh, so they come across as hesitating, uncertain. To be fair, the United States also has stopped short of a full-throated, we want Ukraine to win. And so that allows Germany to hide a little bit behind um, the U.S. General Petraeus, uh, you know, your your former commander when you were in the 101st Airborne, um, he said that the U.S. message was unhelpful. Um, that yes, the M1 Abram tanks from America would probably be unhelp would be unhelpful to Ukraine because of the, the maintenance, the jet fuel needed. It's it's just not the tank for the moment. But he said, look, if if the U.S. in giving a dozen or fourteen tanks uh, would be enough to give Germany some self confidence about supplying the tanks, then it should should just do it. Exactly. This this is the United States. And and what what I hear coming from the Pentagon, unfortunately, too much, not just from the White House, but from the Pentagon, is um, you know, they stop short of saying we want Ukraine to win, and therefore we're going to give everything that they need. Um, the closest that uh, Secretary Austin is, is able to come now, of course, part of this he, he could be on a pretty tight leash from the White House, but he said we we want Ukraine to be successful. What what does that mean? Successful at what? And and then the chairman, who who I've known for many years, a very, very good, smart, professional soldier, you know, keeps talking about, you know, Ukraine should negotiate. I don't know. I don't think it, that they could eject Russia. I mean, he first of all, I disagree with him. Second of all, um, the chairman talking about negotiation is that's that's not his role. And, and so but this has revealed to me that uh, I don't think the joint staff really believes that Ukraine can defeat Russia. And so because of that, they they stopped short of saying, let's give them this, let's give them this. And because I think they also have an exaggerated uh, perception of the risk of Russia using a nuclear weapon. And I think they also are, are thinking in very traditional, conventional terms. You know, there was a huge debate in World War II. Eisenhower decided to push the broad front. So you had U.S. forces in a broad front from north to south, rather than focusing um, for a, a penetration that would have brought about a quicker result. And I think that the Joint Staff thinks like Eisenhower did in that regard of a broad front versus a decisive operation that would isolate and liberate Crimea and then take care of all the rest later. I mean, you often speak about isolating and penetrating into Crimea by Ukraine, and a lot of people are scared when they hear that. I mean, hear that that question of should they enable Ukraine to take back the Crimea because they fear that the Crimea probably is never going to be taken back by Ukraine because Russia will do anything and everything, and you talk about nuclear blackmail, everything to defend Crimea, and that there is not a decision-making diplomatic um, decision-making that's that's been taken, that yes, Crimea eventually is a goal that Ukraine should have. 
Crimea is the decisive terrain. Ukraine will never be safe or secure, nor will it ever be able to rebuild its economy as long as Russia controls Crimea. I mean, when you just look at the map, you can see that if they sit in Crimea, they can reach all of southern Ukraine. Uh, they can disrupt any traffic going in and out of Odessa or the Dnipro. And certainly they'll continue to block anything going up into Azov Sea. So where Ukraine has two uh, major seaports, Berdansk and Mariupol, both of which, of course, right now are occupied by Russian forces. So as long as they sit in Crimea, they're going to be able to keep doing this. They'll wait a couple of years for us to lose interest, and then they'll pick pick back up where they left off. So uh, I, it would be a significant mistake for Kiev to agree to any kind of negotiation where Russia retains Crimea, especially because I think that they can liberate Crimea by the end of this summer. Now, yes, um, there are people that say, oh, this is a red line for the Kremlin. You know, we've been hearing that the Kremlin was going to escalate if we provided Javelin, if we provided Stinger, if we provided HIMARS, if we provided Patriot, if we provided Bradley. None, 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 none. Um, and I think that um, if we think if we think differently about Crimea, not as a, a big blue arrow that's going to go and, and attack it in the old fashioned way, but instead isolating it by uh, destroying the two, the only two links that connect Crimea back to Russia. One, obviously, is the Kerch Bridge. And notice the Russians did not do anything after the Kerch Bridge was severely damaged. I mean, they, they couldn't escalate after that. They're trying to repair it. And maybe they'll have it repaired by March, but I'm sure the Ukrainians will revisit that Kerch Bridge again. And then the other line of communication is the so-called land bridge that runs from Rostov down through Mariupol, Melitopol to Crimea. Sever both of those with long-range precision fires, and then you start making Crimea untenable. There's nowhere to hide. Sevastopol, Zhankoi, Zaki, all the big places, Atakums. Uh, ground launch, small diameter bombs, Gray Eagle, that place becomes untenable. The Russians won't be able to operate from there. So as an, as an army general who spent your entire retired, life... Retired. Retired, who spent your entire life commanding forces. If I told you, go and fight, uh, Lieutenant General Hodges, send your men in there and defeat that enemy, but don't take their major launch pad where they uh, rearm, um, regroup, um, and, and actually attack from, what, I mean, what would you say to me? I would say uh, whoever gave me that order has failed to remember history. I mean, we went through that in Vietnam, where the, uh, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese had a sanctuary uh, outside of Vietnam, uh, where the North Koreans had sanctuary and where the Taliban had sanctuary in Pakistan. So uh, what we have done is, in effect, create sanctuary for the Russians by limiting the weapons we provide to uh, 90 kilometers. The Gimler's rocket that's or missile that's fired by HIMARS, 90 kilometers. So anything beyond 90 kilometers of where HIMARS is located is, in effect, Sanctuary. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about just inside Russia or Belarus. I'm talking about Crimea. And so Russia has sanctuary from which they're able to launch these Iranian drones, airstrikes, 
the Black Sea Fleet sails out um, and launches caliber missiles. And and so, uh, and of course, they've got gigantic logistics uh, sites in Crimea as well. Does providing tanks, and inevitably they're going to come, I think, whether they come directly from Germany or whether they come from some of the other nations in Europe, the, the leopard tanks, leopards, as they're, as they're called, do you think that they will change the, the battlefield? Are they a key here? Yes, because the uh, armored force, well, let me, let me step back. I think that Ukrainian general staff realizes that they can pretty much hold Russia with what they have already, obviously at great cost. But after five months, Russians have not been able to take Bakhmut, right? So doing what we would doctrinally call economy of force, holding that back, that that should give the Ukrainian general staff the confidence that they can build up a large armored force that is trained, logistically ready, and it's built around uh, Ukrainian armored vehicles plus captured Russian vehicles and increasingly Western armored vehicles and probably something in the strength in the strength of a division, an armored division. So three or four brigades uh, that would be used in a, uh, a penetration of these linear Russian defenses between um, the uh, Dnipro River and Mariupol or Zaporizhia or Melitopol, with the, with the objective being to isolate Crimea. So drive direct towards Sea of Azov. And, and now you have severed with land forces that land bridge. Uh, and then in there, you exploit that. Then you can bring in HIMARS and you can start pounding away on Crimea. And what's the danger if you don't do it? What's the danger if this debate just continues on and time becomes a very muscular factor for big Russia, which is recruiting and rearming and and thinking about its own offensive? And there are all sorts of rumors about one that's coming. Yeah, um, I, I think you raise a very important point that the longer this goes on, uh, the more Ukrainians are lost, more innocent people are killed. Um, I, I am skeptical about the ability of Russia to, to start all over here. Um, th- there is talk about a Russian offensive, about a new mobilization, but um, you know that was such a cluster last September. I don't know if they've repaired or fixed all the problems of last fall's uh, partial mobilization. Uh, we'll see. Um, having thousands of troops, of course, uh, does not equal a real threat if they're not backed up by more artillery, tanks, you know, those other kind of uh, combat capabilities. Um, and I don't know what they've got still in the in the locker uh, that they can bring out. Um, so I'm at this point, I'm skeptical about the the reality of a major Russian threat that could that could seriously call change the dynamics on the ground. But the problem with time is not that Ukraine will lose the will, but that the West loses the will. And so I think uh, the Ukrainians are looking at the calendar and they see here's an opportunity. We could liberate Crimea by the end of August. That's the decisive bit. And then we can turn our attention to what's left in Donbass. And of course, once Crimea is gone, there will be a lot of uh, internal issues going on inside Russia. And I think the willingness 
of people to continue fighting and die in Donetsk and Luhansk for Russia will drop off dramatically. Two two really interesting tweets from the Lithuanian foreign minister. And I, you know, I love little Lithuania because they're pretty bold and they've led the debate on so much of this. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Landsbergers came out and said, one, um, if we fully and finally accept that Russia has to lose in order for us to avoid future wars, then I believe that all the other questions about su- support for Ukraine will become much easier to answer. And then he came back to this time question that you and I just talked about. He said, the longer we discuss how Ukraine should or should not be helped, the more Putin can build up his armed forces and murder civilians. That is why we need to overcome our fear of victory and act now. Is there a fear of victory, do you think? I think there, the way he said it is, is more articulate than I could have said it. But yes, I think... Uh, people are in disbelief or they're worried like, oh, my God, we, Ukraine might actually win. Then what? And uh, you that would call into question a lot of different beliefs that many people have had for decades. So uh, I think it is important that we should get our heads around the idea that Ukraine can win and will win. And let's do what's necessary to make that happen as soon as possible. So a fear of victory is actually very, very clever. And I think the White House has a fear of victory because um, they're not sure what comes next. Does Germany have a fear of victory, do you think, too? And that's why they can't quite decide whether to start pushing tanks across the border into Ukraine. I think it's it's not so much fear of victory on the German side. I think it's a fear of themselves. I think they don't trust themselves. Um, you know, I hear all the different things about history, about um, um, guilt, about all this other nonsense. That is, um, and I call it nonsense because there was a period of about 20 years where we had a massive German Bundeswehr, 14 divisions, thousands of our. So this, you know, fear of uh, military, it's, this is newfound and um, or newly rediscovered. And so um, they've got to decide if Germany, the Germans have to decide if they really do value uh, international rules based order human rights, um, international law, then they have to take a stand. I mean, Germany has benefited from this more than anybody since the end of the war, this this whole international order. And so if they're not willing to defend it, then we run the risk of losing it. Last question to you. You were, I think, more than anybody I know, um, the, the person who called this right. Pre-February 24th, 2000. Uh, and, and 22. Uh, while so many people were debating whether Russia would actually pull the trigger, Ben Hodges, in, in interviews that you and I did even even prior, uh, you know, several months prior, you said Russia's going to do it. Russia's going to go across the border. Here we are, a year later, Ben. Um, it, did this go exactly the way you you thought it would? Because this has been months and months longer than anybody probably thought that the war would go on. Yeah, People thought it would be short. Of course, it didn't go exactly as I thought it would. Um, and you're being generous. I was sure the Russians would attack, but I did not believe they would attack in such, like from five different directions and that they would go all in like that because it wasn't necessary. I didn't think that for them to accomplish what their objectives were. Nonetheless, 
Uh, well, you, you may be saying that they attacked badly and you didn't think that they would attack so badly and do such a bad job. Okay. But, but you, did, you did predict they would roll into Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. Um, the uh, I think I would have expected us to have acted faster by now. Really? I mean, this incrementalism by the administration uh, and they think they're doing it right. I mean, they they think I I've seen people commenting this is working. You know, it's you know we're we're not putting too much on the Ukrainians too fast. And there's a kind of a condescending attitude that comes out of Washington towards towards Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are that <laughs> they don't have anything else to prove. They they have demonstrated they can do just about anything. Maybe it's not clean. It maybe it's wasteful in certain in certain cases. But, I mean, they're fighting for their life. And um, I think that, uh, you know, when somebody from the Pentagon talks about, oh, you know, we don't want to burden them with the huge fuel consumption of an Abrams or they're not ready for this or it'll take too long to train on that. Come on. I mean, we but it's because we have not we, the administration and the, and the Pentagon have not accepted that, yes, Ukraine is going to win and that Russia is not going to use a nuclear weapon. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, retired. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you once again, Dana, for the privilege. Okay, and I hate to tell you this, but the clock is ticking. The doomsday clock. On Tuesday, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists reset the symbolic Armageddon timepiece to 90 seconds until midnight. And that's the closest it's ever been in its 75th history. Thanks for listening to Backstory this week and share this podcast. I'm Dana Lewis, and I'll talk to you again soon.